On today's podcast, we have Gorm Thomason. Gorm is the CIO of AKO Capital, one of the world's leading investment funds, managing around $22 billion in capital. AKO were founded in 2005 by Nikolai Tongan, who now manages the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund with $1.3 trillion in its coffers. It's the largest fund on the planet, owning approximately 1.8% of the world's stocks. Now, for me, AKO are the All Blacks of London's hedge funds. I've been privileged to see behind the scenes at AKO, and they are truly one of those rare, rare organizations that practice what they preach and have profound methodology behind the results they produce that we'll explore during this conversation. As someone who's a partner in a fundamental investing fund, this was a particularly meaningful conversation for me. In this episode, we're going to talk about how Gorm and his team handle $100 million plus PL swings, some philosophy, and the powerful role humility plays in building elite performance. I hope you enjoy. Gorm Thomason, welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. Thank you, sir. So I'm desperate to know. The first moment the prospect of pursuing a career as an investor entered your your mind. So uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question because I was one of those kids that never really knew what I wanted to be, and um, knowing that I have a kind of unhealthy uh, level competitive instinct, uh, I thought that finance was a good sort of. Um, Revenge of the Nerds, where I could go and be opinionated about something and know instantly whether I'm right or wrong. And it's a, a fantastic place to learn. And that's really how I kind of came to finance in a kind of indirect way, really. Okay, that's brilliant. It's almost like the mental sport, as it were, I guess. Absolutely. Was there, was it like, um, was there a specific character whether it was on like a was it the wall street sort of movie or a book you'd read or a family member perhaps that you'd sort of thought oh i like the look of no it was just a really kind of uh pathetic uh you know overdeveloped uh, competitive instinct and that when you talk to people that good grades at school they said oh you know maybe you could get into this university and then maybe you can work in finance so same thing, you know, at university, people uh, said, oh, wouldn't it be cool to work for Goldman Sachs? Uh, that would just be amazing. And, uh, you know, they have the best trading program and you get to go to New York and, and that sort of chat that got me intrigued. Uh, so I, I just, you know, want to stress how lucky I've been. And, you know, you kind of talk about how clever you've been and planning your uh, career and everything, but there's a huge, huge amount of luck in here. So, um, you know, I just like to get that caveat in uh, on, on everything I say about right. My abilities and uh, the degree of success I've had, and 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 you're from Norway. That's right. Not particularly like it's not particularly the you know the stereotypical finance hub of the world. But were there any people in that environment there that that sort of prompted you or peers that that? If anything, you know, my parents uh, thought that I'd enjoy going out into the bigger world and. Uh, inspired me to to go abroad spend a bit of time uh, at school in the states and i just sort of wanted to go out and explore see was there and you know uh compete against uh, the people regionally and then you want to compete nationally and then you want to compete internationally i guess absolutely and in terms of um academia so you you sort of had this interest then obviously academically you went on to study the subject um how was how was your studies for you and there was obviously that spark there did did studying the subject in those academic environments turn that into more of a flame 
No, I mean, my academic background is pretty broad. So uh, I did this army intelligence thing in Norway, which is the pretty much the only elitist thing we do in Norway. Um, and again, that's, you know, competing against the smartest people in the country to get into this thing. And then, you know, you do a bit of uh, Russian language and some military stuff. And, and then I read a bit of Russian history and um, history at university. Then I went to London. I did a bit of economics. Um, and like I said earlier, I, I didn't know I was going to go into finance. But in retrospect, I think I've been lucky in that having a broad education is crucial for sparking a bit of creativity in what you do if you only come from one narrow field it's really hard to be creative because you know you can't really draw any inspiration from outside of your narrow field so I, I think with hindsight I've been lucky in having a broader than normal education yeah um, and within within finance I think it's fair to say there's you see that that competitive nature is really coming through, and and finance for sure is 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 competitive. But there's also lots of avenues you can potentially apply that competitive nature. For instance, you've got you got one end of the spectrum. You have got that I guess the 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 day trading side of things, where maybe making lots of decisions all day long, and then you've got at the other end perhaps the the fundamental investing side of things, more cerebral, perhaps more of a, a poker game than a, a gunslinging fight. Where who can just throw the most rounds down? Was there any point in time where you considered? I mean, how did you zero on to the area of investing that you went on to excel in? That's a very good description of the financial markets uh, you just gave there, and, and you know, just knowing myself, I'm clearly better suited at the more longer term chess game type of situation uh so you know more revenge of the nerds than kind of really quick thinking on your feet uh, environment would, would you know, suit me much better to be in that long-term bucket absolutely and, and could, would you mind describing in, in a very succinct way that the this i guess the style of investing you take to, to some of the listeners that perhaps don't have an uh, a finance background so, so first of all uh you know finance is a bit kind of baffling uh because you come in and uh, there are a lot of people who do a lot of strange things, and sadly, the results are not very good for investors in general. So, you know, for our parents' pension money, that you know hasn't been a success uh, because people, like I said, just do a lot of strange things. One of the biggest problems in the market is that uh, the stock market has become increasingly short term. So, if you go back to the eighties, people would hold stocks for maybe seven, eight years. If you look at the American stock market today, you have half of the trading volume coming from options and within that half of those options expire on the day uh, which you know you can't really get more short term than that so that's a big problem and really um, our fundamental insight uh, at AQO is a really simple one uh, it's you know if you're long term in a short term world you can beat the market and if anyone's interested in, in the stock market I think you know the key key insight really is uh, going back to Ben Graham when he said the stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine in the long term. So in the short term, it's all about you know our stocks uh, hot or not, popular or not, and their valuations they go up and down every day, every second. Um, whereas in the long run, it's all about you know are you actually invested in in a good company? And if that uh, company does well, it compounds earnings over time. You know. 
that's a wonderful thing and uh, you will easily beat the market but that means you have to be in that investment for at least a couple of years and the majority of market uh, is not so they miss out on that it, it really is uh, as simple as that fantastic and i want to just um rewind back to your time with the uh, norwegian military um it's fascinating it's something we don't have in the uk in terms of national service um but how do you think looking back with a little bit of hindsight bias that set you up for the success you've you've clearly gone on to have do you think there were experiences there that that perhaps gave you an edge that i can imagine some of your peers perhaps at an lse perhaps might not have experienced first of all just doing something completely different um uh it, it's really helpful because you you take that that experience with you and you know like i said earlier that sparks a bit of creativity because there's always something you can take with you into your new situation um i think uh spending time in a completely different type of organization which is a you know uh dictatorship essentially just shows you in which situations dictatorship is better than democracy from an organizational point of view um you learn a lot about yourself in terms of pushing yourself and you know um you see how wonderful it can be to go through some difficult times with people how it you know really gels you together as a group um and so i think you know i i you know if i ran the country i'd definitely have uh, national service i i think oh, it's just, you know just those people from different walks of life into to to the same room uh, as a group and you discover you have more in common than you, you have uh, in, you know the, the difference so um, no, I, I think it was, uh, you know, a great experience. Uh, tough times sometimes when you were there, but I'm you know, really happy I did. I can imagine. And the, I guess those tough times are, are synonymous with life itself and uh, can give you some prep for that for that as well and when they inevitably hit. Specifically in the military, your role was within the intelligence side of things. So uh, this was back in the day. Um, I mean, it sounds uh, horribly familiar now, but uh, this was back with the Soviet Union. So the idea was that um, in the horrible event that uh, the Soviet Union would attack uh, Norway, we would perhaps um, capture some uh, soldiers and then you need to interview these people. And they try to figure out, uh, based on that interview and whatever other intelligence, um, yeah, build a picture of what's uh, going on on the, on the battlefield. So what we did was a combo of uh, learning Russian from uh, scratch uh, and, uh, you know, quite a bit about uh, military intelligence in, in, in general. Fascinating stuff. Moving on from that, your early experience in finance, can you talk us through through some of that? I started as a uh, broker in London and it is a baffling environment because people do a lot of things that, uh, like I said, just don't seem to give a very good result. Um, but, you know, they're very well rewarded for it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it takes a few years to sort of find your way through that jungle. Um, and you, you start out quite respectful and you think that, well, these people have done it for a long time, so they must be doing it the right way. And, um, but then gradually it dawns on you that, you know, uh, as a broker, your incentives are in fact totally opposite to the best interest of your clients. So back to what I said earlier, if you want to be a successful investor, I very much think you have to be long term. If you want to be a successful broker, on the other hand, you have to be very short term. It's all about, you know, 
getting your name out there, uh, having some great stories, making your clients trade a lot because they generate a lot of commission for your bank. And, uh, you know, it's like a popularity contest. And then if you're really popular, you, you get voted the best uh, broker that year, typically the best broker that year, I noticed. We're not the guys who made their clients a lot of money, but made their bank a lot of money and kind of got their names up in lights. And then you move on um, to your next gig at another bank uh, where you paid more. And the average career is like, you know, three, four years or something. So very short term. And uh, so this was a really good insight when we started AKO. Um, because, you know, uh, both uh, my partner and I had spent time on the sell side as a broker. And we knew that, the incentives are completely screwed up. So the first thing we do is like, okay, let's not use the brokers at all. Um, and, you know, that, that obviously leaves you with the question, okay, if you're not going to use brokers um, for help uh, to lean on, then, you know, you have to do whatever due, deal you do, due diligence you, you, you do, you have to do it yourself. And, and then we went back to the kind of intelligence service routes and thought, okay, you know, what are the best ways of finding out things, triangulating information, and uh, so, so both of those experiences were extremely helpful in, in setting up AKO, uh, having spent time in the intelligence service and then been uh, in the kind of uh, engine room of, of the financial market, which, you know, is an investment bank and then see how things work on, um, on that side. That's very interesting. And, you know, where, where, at what point did you sort of think, right, it's time to make this transition from this environment I'm in, in the broking side of things, towards, uh, I guess, wh wh where you are now. Uh, so you kind of always want to do it because uh, there's a huge difference between, you know, pulling the trigger and advising other people to pull the trigger. Um, Was that always a strong desire for you to be taking risk, to be at sort of the teeth end of the... Absolutely, because otherwise, how can you prove what they really, you know, consistently whether you're right or wrong? So this comes back okay. to being an opinionated idiot and, you know, wanting to test if your opinion is right or wrong. And and, and you can't do that being a broker. Uh, well, it's, I mean, you can, but it's much, much easier if you have a clean track record of buying and selling things. And, you know, uh, it's there for everyone to see what you've done and, and uh, whether it's any good or not. Absolutely. That, that, that meritocracy is what I absolutely love about trading and investing from a performance standpoint. It really is black and white where you are, especially... Yeah, I mean, it drives me around the bend when you're having conversations and there is no right or wrong answer. And, you know, <laughs> it's extremely frustrating. And, and uh, here it's very black and white, very good. And so you've you've obviously gone on to set up AKO uh, with your partner Nikolai Tongan, and you know it, it, it's obvious you guys are a tier one at what you do, world leading. You know when was that? What, what were the seeds of AKO? At what point did the idea enter your mind and think, hey, we we can build something here? And did you even have any idea of the success that you'd end up having? Uh, we started out in 2005 and then they had the great big ugly financial crisis uh, and we got through that uh, like we've done with everything in a through combination of luck and skill. We, I remember very well, we had an offside during the financial crisis and we thought either we have to retrade as plumbers and electricians and the whole financial system is going to come crashing down or uh, this could be an amazing opportunity going out, uh, you know, blank piece of paper. You can buy whatever you like because everything is cheap. 
And so we thought, well, you know, let's be a bit optimistic and let's do the latter. So uh, we, we just like thought, okay, what are the best companies in Europe? We started buying those. And then the more we thought about it, with the help of some people over the years, we realized that uh, quality is probably the best way to uh, go about investing and holding high quality companies for the long term is now what AKO is all about. But you know, we, we again got there through a combination of luck, skill and, you know, quite a lot of introspection. And there must have been some belief there as well, because, it, you know, it's no secret. I think Elon Musk talked about this as well, how he actually describes it as, a, as kind of a problem that this, the, the, the top individuals in the academic systems at Ivy League or Oxbridge in the UK genuine generally they, they they tend to move into the finance space it's got some of the the the, the world's greatest talent who all then move, maybe move into the investment banks who all then want to be at the teeth end where you are now they want to be working at an AKO and obviously that that's that creates this incredibly competitive environment so to outperform and be at the top percent of that industry you know what do you think has has been the causal mechanism behind that success i mean i can talk about the process here and i can talk a little bit about what i think personally has contributed and how the two kind of fit together so first of all it's the insight that we derive literally from the whole background thing that you know we want to work with the uh, not the voting machine, which is the popularity contest, because nobody can guess what's going to be popular uh, any particular week or month or season or even year in the stock market. Um, and then, you know, we want to work with uh, the weighing uh, machine, which is where we think we can add value. We think we can do some research and, and say that, you know, this is a good industry and this is the best company within a good industry. You know, like I said, hold high quality companies for the long term, then you need to think about, okay, what does that look like in practice? We think you have to be very, very stringent about separating the process, which is what you do on a day-to-day basis um, here in the office, and the outcome, which is, you know, how good is an investment? And this is particularly important with what we do because the lags can be phenomenally long. You know, you make an investment decision. It could be three years until you know whether you're right or wrong. And in the meantime, the market will tell you maybe every single day for a year that you are a complete idiot and that you are completely wrong. Having that, you know, mantra of process versus outcome, where process is the stuff you can control, the outcome has a huge input from Lady Luck, and, you know, you can be uh, really unlucky uh, and, you know, that's always going to happen uh, in our industry particularly, you know, if you get 55% right and 45% wrong, you're a complete genius, which means you're getting 45% wrong, which is quite a lot of getting stuff wrong. And, you know, uh, the, the, the way to stay sane in that environment and not get kind of completely, you know, rattled by, by bad outcomes is to focus on the process, know that if you do that, Yes, you'll have some bad luck, but on average, you know, uh, you'll have a mix of good and bad, and it'll be a good outcome in the long run. So for us, like a good parallel is sailing, you know, you can rig your boat and you can 
train with your crew and whatever, but then some kind of, you know, weird current uh, turns you the wrong way around or a competitor drives into an orc, uh, eats your rudder or whatever. So, you know, there's always all that complete luck element which you can't control. I think those are the kind of key insights AKO. And then if I think about it from a personal point of view, you know, by nature being patient because you need to sort of sit there and accept that the market tells you you're wrong every day every week for a year and be okay with that (laughs) and not start to get impatient and do stupid things because you haven't had the patience to see whether you're right or wrong with your initial investment decision so being patient is is good uh and if you want to be impatient you can be impatient on the process you could like you know shout at everybody to dot the i's cross the t's do the process right but you know be patient about the outcome and impatient about the process so that's one thing i think the second thing is uh you need to be a bit of a kind of jack of all trades um as opposed to an expert in one thing so you know again for a kind of metaphor would be the fox and the hedgehog you know fox is quite adaptive he can do a lot of different things whereas the hedgehog has one trick which is Pins out, you know, the devil's always in the detail. Each situation is different and, and you need to have a wide tool set to, to approach uh, different problems. Um, so I guess those two things for me are more kind of the, you know, just lucky traits I happen to have. Um, then there's the really interesting thing, I think, which is where everybody can train and, and get better. And this is uh, introspection because... I think only by introspection have we, uh, you know, got to where we are, uh, always thinking about what we do and evaluate constantly. I I think fundamentally, you know, you just sort of need to go back to the basics and have some kind of belief system, which, which just underpins how you think and why you should introspect. And so for me, there's some really, really important inputs in my life. And, and, um, so this goes all the way back to, to kind of good old uh, Socrates who, who just always said, you know, look, we don't actually know anything uh, and nobody has a monopoly on the truth. But if you talk to other people and in particular, if you listen to other people, you will get a little bit closer to the truth. Uh, and I think that is just like such a fundamental insight. It just explains why you do introspection. Um, he also said, you know, you have to be humble about this thing. You know, is that something like... Uh, you know, we're all idiots. I'm the biggest idiot uh, of them all. But difference is, I know it. Uh, and that I love for introspection. Just, you know, to, that as your starting point, uh, I think is is fabulous. And for me, when we hire people, that's like a key, key, key thing. You know, you need someone who's humble, who's willing to talk to other people and learn in, in a kind of teamwork setting. Building on from that, the next thing for me, which really, really struck home in terms of why you should introspect and how to do it, is is, is uh, David Hume, who said, you know, contrary, contrary to popular belief, we make all decisions with our heart, and then our brain uh, is not making decisions. That's not, you know, you might may think so, but the brain is basically like your PR department that will rationalize why you made a snap judgment with your heart about whatever it is. And you go on and you kind of explain it to yourself and others why you've done it. But that's that's not the causality at all. And then, you know, um, one of the books which we gave to all our clients here for Christmas one year, which I think is one of the kind of fundamental books about, uh, you know, investing in, in cognitive uh, behaviors is, is Kahneman, the, the thinking fast and slow, because he builds on the human insight. He says, you know, 
yes, we have uh, this kind of decision-making with the heart, and he calls it system one thinking. So it's kind of the you know monkey brain, uh, automatic heuristics, uh, make decisions like that. Then, as humans, we have this alternative we can flick to, which is the system two, where you sit down and you think carefully, more objectively, slowly about something. And his book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. And the book goes on about how you should think about, you know, when you use flea kind of reflex or, and when you should engage the kind of more careful, slow system two thinking. I think that's just such a sort of super crucial insight in that, uh, you know, how useful is the monkey brain for me in investing, fight or flee? <laughs> Probably not at all, really. I mean, it's completely irrelevant because, you know, the financial market is a kind of human construct which has nothing to do with uh, the, you know, evolutionary environment that our brain has kind of been developing in for the last uh, hundreds of thousands of years. So it's, it's pretty useless. And then Coleman opens the, 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 this kind of, super interesting area for exploring is, is like how bad our monkey uh, brain heuristics are for, for doing most things in finance uh, and uh, uh, I actually wrote down this just for an illustration I thought it's quite funny so there are you know just looking at uh, biases we have so this is where our brain goes wrong uh, there's five really important ones uh, just on the letter A so I'll just rattle them off quickly but yeah. uh, there's ambiguity bias, which means, you know, we don't like to new, learn new stuff. So we, we like to decide based on stuff we know. Uh, we all know anchoring. Uh, that's a really powerful bias. Someone tells you a number. You just, like, guess a number close to that number for no other reason than other person said a number. Um, then there's one which has a really funky name, apophenia, which is where you see patterns that are just kind of made up by your brain. You see, you know faces in the clouds you see signs from god and then you trade on those signs from god and that is usually a really bad trade because <laughs> you're just making up a story in your head but we're really prone to do that um and then there's uh you know the availability bias which uh, basically says you know we don't actually like to learn new things so we just make a decision on what we we uh know already uh and I think that's a really good one in finance in particular because you know this is why companies go bust. Even like good companies go bust because they plan for everything they think, but then they forget about the fact that inevitably uh, there will be new things happening from between now and the end of your budget period. And so, oh, there's an unexpected uh, problem, and and then they go bust because they haven't budgeted for the unknown. They only budgeted. For the stuff they know about and and anybody can tell you if you ask him like you know did anything unexpected happen in your life in the last you know year or two it, of course it does it happens all the time and uh my mum tells me apparently my great granddad he was an accountant and he uh obviously being an accountant he was very careful about kind of budgeting and this and that so he budgeted perfectly for all the stuff uh and he went bust because there were unexpected uh, expenses right um and so I think this is such a fascinating arena just to kind of explore our biases, put down systems that will combat the biases, correct for them. And, you know, we that, that, that's kind of what we spend our time essentially doing day in, day in out uh, at ACO to, to, you know, put in place systems to, to, to keep this uh, monkey brain from making too many mistakes for us.
that's incredibly insightful. And I think this is one of the things that I think the the mindset and investing has so much value in terms of transferring to to just the average Joe or you know a, a, a graduate deciding what they're going to have next, uh, the next step in their career, or you know the, the 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 professional who's considering a career change, or just anyone making any decision in life. Because in effect, your 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 success is judged by the quality of the decisions you make, right? Whether you're a, a Gorm Thomason or or hey any anyone. And I think some of the principles that that you've used and leveraged that you've just talked through through there with us um, can be leveraged by everyone to improve the quality of the decisions they make in their own life to increase the probability of the success that they encounter. And I think that, in effect, I guess what you're doing is there's this inherently complex body of information that you need to distill down and then eliminate all those biases that might impede the way you distill the information to be able to to make a to make a, a good decision or 55. 45 uh, in terms no, you're of... absolutely right. And I, I think introspection is just so helpful because, you know, we live in this sort of weird world where there's theory and then there's practice and then there's this huge challenge in changing your own behaviour, let alone other people's behaviour. But, you know, unless you engage in some introspection to begin with, you, you never even start on that journey. So I, I think it's kind of the key to unlock better decision-making no, no, no matter what you do. And how have you found that transition to being sort of the, the superstar investor to to then, I guess, as as AKOs develop to become this behemoth, you're suddenly, you're, the team obviously increases. Now it's not just about you, it's about the team and extracting potential from them. How, how have you found that? Is that something you've enjoyed? And is there any, th- any, any big learnings there that you, you could share? I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I, I think you know uh, <laughs> part of the reason why we're we're talking here really is uh, you know I, I read your book and it had just like a happy coincidence that um, we just discovered that you know we're really good at a lot of things, but we're really really bad at, at uh, identifying talent, hiring people, and developing talent. And so you know, um, been really inspiring for us to to think That's more carefully about that uh, now that we're bigger and we're kind of. Uh, hire more people and we need to be more structured around that and uh, so that's a really really good process but I I think um, in terms of the organizational structure we did spend enough time to uh, plan so that we have been able to execute one of the very few successful generational transitions in the hedge fund world because quite often hedge funds are more like you know uh, uh one really or two really clever people uh, the process is a bit black box in their brain and this it, it's not particularly well documented or indeed imprinted on the rest of the organization and i think uh, like I said, trying to fight all these prejudices and make these different processes and, and, and get everyone's input into that. Um, uh, that that gets a lot of buy-in from the organization. And, and so we, you know, we started out being more kind of top down in how we developed and experimented. And now it is still some top down. Uh, like the recruitment thing is a bit more top down now, but we also have a lot of bottom up ideas coming through the organization of people who throw up ideas which we'll run with and we'll experiment and you know we document if it works we'll invest behind it if it doesn't um 
And you know, being very transparent about it, um, even even if we kill off a project that someone has uh, launched, at, at least people feel that they've been heard, and and I think that is really really important. So, yeah, foster transparency, dialogue, uh, and obviously then hire the right people who um, like dialogue better than monologue, um, and you know, quite humble by nature and and keen to learn. Um, that that's worked uh, pretty well for us. And how would you describe that? that AKO performer, the people that you've that have enabled you to see uh, uh, achieve that incredibly rare accomplishment that you just, you know, the, the generational shift. And it, it it's something so rare to do in any uh, performance environment to sustain success at that level beyond say the core, the core team or the core individual. But what, what, what would you say um, differentiates the, the average performer at, um, AKO from perhaps the average performer, the average fund that has nowhere near the level of success you have in terms of the traits? So uh, I think we are a little bit more modern in a few ways that, for instance, you know, we don't particularly look for that uh, uh, extraordinary maverick guy with his black box process uh, in his head who can just read the market. Uh, that that type of you know old school uh, stuff we 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 don't hire for. Um, we have also been quite introspective about what we think analysts are good at and what we think other people maybe are better at, which you know means that we have disaggregated the role of an analyst at AKO. So. Uh, very quickly, you know, we, we think, for instance, that channel checking is much better done by a professional market research team who can make 15,000 calls in 20 different languages than one guy who'll make a call in, a, you know, 15, 20 different places and be completely biased about the outcome. And that's something very novel that you do, right? That, yeah, that's... he's invested his or her ego in making an investment recommendation. Then, you know, you make channel checks, you just, you know, you hear what you want to hear and everything will sound really positive to you. Whereas, you know, if we do something arm's length with a market research team, that is much more unbiased information. Ditto with accounting. So I'm not saying our analysts are not good at accounting, but, you know, there are some people who actually do love accounting. And me personally, accounting was my worst subject at university. So, you know, I'm I'm okay, but, you know, we've got people who are like absolute black belt uh, accountants and they do all they do is accounting. And of course, they're going to be better and, and again, you know, I get an unbiased view on the accounts of the, the company. So instead of my analyst telling me that, oh, the accounts are fine uh, because he or she is totally biased uh, on that company and they believe the management and they don't think anything's wrong. And, you know, we get some accountants and occasionally the accountants will raise their hand and say, like, you know, we think these accounts are not very good. And um, that's an unbiased view on the accounts from someone who's much better. Uh, behavior. I mean, this is going way back to the like, you know, whole intelligence service. We we employ people who are you know linguists, psychologists who give us an idea about whether a, a management team is is being uh, you know uh, as the saying goes, telling the truth, the whole truth, uh, or, or uh, nothing but the truth. And again, you know, these people are better on average at reading behavior. They're unbiased because they don't particularly care for a long or short uh, company. They're not that interested sometimes in finance at all, which is great because they just look at behavior. And so, you know, so we we tell the analysts, uh, look, you know, um, uh, back to the humidity thing. I think you know, 
you, you guys are good at this, but you're not so good at that. And here you need to cooperate with other people who are better and please listen to them and use that in your analysis. So that's a very modern thing. I don't think a lot of people do uh, this in terms of their, their research uh, process. Uh, but, you know, that, that means you need to hire for that. You need to hire people who, who are willing to be very open, to learn, to listen to people who are, you know, better at them at different aspects of their job and, and work as a team and, and, and be humble and, and, and all that good stuff. So, you know, um, that's what we look for. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but before we dive deeper into the conversation, I want to express how grateful I am that you're voluntarily choosing to spend your time here with us. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. I want to bring you the best podcast I can in terms of guests, engaging discussions and thought provoking conversations every week. And that's where you come in. By hitting that like button and subscribing to the podcast, you play a vital role. Simply put, when you hit that like button or subscribe, you enable the podcast to reach a much wider audience. And the wider the audience, the easier it is for guests within my network to convince their agents, management teams to free up their diary and come on the show. Thank you in advance for your likes and subscriptions. Now, let's get back to business. Now, a question I have to ask is, and this is because in the last few weeks, I've probably bumped into at least three people who've talked about how they're, they're either graduates or experienced professionals from other areas. And there's thousands out there that would cut their right leg off to work at a company like AKO. What would your advice be to, to someone who is genuinely, sincerely obsessed with investing and would like to be at a, a tier one organization like yourself? I would say that probably the best thing you can do is to not rush your entry into investing because you will be a better investor if you have a broad education uh, by methodology, culture, um, by you know uh, academic field, uh, have some real life experience. Um, you know, go out to work in hospitality, deal with real people in real situations and, and not just sort of race through academia and, and, and enter into to the investment world with this kind of completely theoretical, conceptual idea about how the world works because, you know, that's not so good. And, and also, if you take your time, you're probably more likely to have some setbacks and and you know please do experiment because it, these setbacks are really invaluable um you, you you learn a lot about yourself you learn uh, how to bounce back and 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 you know on the flip side that you see people who come through and they're kind of straight a students and they control the outcomes because you kind of can control the outcome at school the university and you go on to be an investor like i said you know we have maybe if we're lucky 55 percent right 45 percent wrong and some poor analyst comes in and their first couple of things go wrong, uh, maybe because of something they've done, or maybe not, because you know, maybe they're unlucky, right? And, and they never recover because this is the first uh, setback they've had in their life. You know, it's just such a shock to the system not to get an A-star. And as uh, Nikolai says, the, the magic happens uh, outside your comfort zone. Excellent advice. I want to pivot now to talk to you about um, what I describe as a peak experience or like a blue head moment. I wondered if there's a moment, whether it was, I don't know, a split 30 seconds or or a period of time, perhaps a few month period or a year even, that you would summarize as almost like the, the 
the peak you've had so far from an emotional standpoint in that you were just head over heels in love with that moment and what you guys were doing as a team? I kind of struggle a little bit with that one because our job is more like a, like a marathon than a sprint. So the sure, of course. Kind of, but, but I mean, maybe the best way to describe it, I don't know, I mean, stop me if, if you think this is nonsense, but like, you know, we we, we, we make very few decisions. Uh, so it's not like we go around and win the zone and we kind of have a hot hand and, you know, we make 50 decisions in the week. We make like a handful of important decisions a year. And so I strongly believe the few decisions you make, the better they are. But that just means that you have to do a lot of process and as I call it, you kiss a lot of frogs, you'll see a lot of companies you don't invest in. And so for me, maybe the magic happens when, you know, you've had a great discussion with a company or you've done some really cool piece of research and gained this insight and you're saying, hey, you know, actually, I think I know something and I've had this really good insight and I think, you know, this is a great situation. I think we can add some value. We should make an investment. And sometimes you get so excited, you kind of want to put on an order under the table in the meeting room because, you know, this is just really, really, really good and you get very excited. And uh, so that kind of excitement happens uh, from time to time, particularly if the rest of the world thinks you're a complete idiot, then it's really exciting. And so one of our best stocks this year, you know, people thought we were complete idiots. Uh, all our clients last year asked us, well, you know, why on earth did you hold this stock? And, you know, we said, blah, 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 we think this and that and the other. And, uh, it was just super cool when 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 that kind of works out and you're dedicated and, and so that's so I don't know if, if kissing frogs is kind of really what you're looking for. That's but, brilliant, uh, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> well, let's flip it on the head. Maybe this one will be easier. Has there been a time where you've had that almost peak trough or peak drawdown, or what I'd describe as a redhead moment where you're like, "Whoa, okay." Oh I mean, yeah, geez. I mean, you know. Like back to making 45% uh, bad decisions and, you know, back to the stock market, which tells you you're an idiot all the time. And, and, and you know, we've been through financial crisis, we've been through COVID. So, you know, we, we have plenty of bad days and uh, we've made every investment mistake in the book. So, uh, you know, we, 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 we can easily write the big book of mistakes. Um, so that's that's not a problem. I've got millions of things there. So, you know, whatever you want to do. Is there one that stands out that was particularly challenging? Absolutely. One uh, really bad one, early days. We invested in a company which turned out to have cooked their books. Uh, and that's really frustrating because you kind of lean on some numbers which then turn out to be completely fraudulent. Um, uh, you know, we lost more than 90%. Uh, and it was just going on for months and months. It was a horrible feeling. It's a good motivator because I can easily, more than 10 years later, recall that horrible, sick feeling in the pit of your stomach and then kind of motivate myself to turn over every stone and minimize the risk that you go through some kind of horrible stuff like that again. And that's part of the reason why we invest in all these accountants, uh, the, 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 you know, the accounting black belts, because, you know, we, we like to think that we're, we're probably more better prepared to spot a mistake like that um, now than we were uh, back then. And, um, and this is really important, you know, like, Nietzsche's right, you know, whatever doesn't kill you uh, makes you better. So if you if you have that mentality and you try to learn from your mistakes, then, you know, it's, it's a good thing. And, and the good thing about us is that we make a ton of mistakes all the time. So hopefully we should kind of accelerate our learnings um, in in the world in which we operate, which is which is good. And, and so so obviously, I guess there's some advice in that answer. But I mean, is there any is there anything else that you'd advise people that are perhaps going through moments like that, whether that's now or recently, and they're perhaps in that moment where they're feeling that, that feeling you described there at the pit of your stomach, you can sort of still 
still feel to an extent when you think about that moment? I mean, what, what advice do you give to people when they're in that moment in order to maximize their ability to extract the learnings from it so they can actually emerge stronger from it than they went in, like you guys have for decades? I don't know if there's much you can do when you're in the moment. So I think the only thing you can do is on a kind of nice sunny day when you're not in that moment, you could think a bit about, you know, uh, uh, life in general. And I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I don't, I, mean, I don't know if you read these stupid uh, Jack Reacher books, The Lee Child, but, you know, you keep saying, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Um, yeah. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that because, like, uh, there's a much better book uh, in fact by, by a guy who he survived the worst of his gulag camps and he had some survival tips because he as opposed to jack reach had been through some real stuff and he said among other things uh, don't ask for anything and don't expect anything and i think that's much better because i think you know you should just like you know be be cognizant that there will be bad and good things uh and don't go around and hope for a lot of stuff because then you're just going to be disappointed and just prepare for the bad times during the good times. So like here, we sat down the team after three or four good years and we told them, look, you know, we've, through a combination of luck and skill, had three or four really good years, we will have a bad year. And then we ran the team through our experience in 2013 when we had a bad year because half of the team, present team, wasn't here in 13. And we told them how bad we felt. We went through the mistakes we made and what we should do different next time this happens. And having told people that, you know, there will be a bad time and let's not repeat the mistakes and maybe see if we can, you know, let's let's turn it into a challenge. Next next downturn, we're going to do better than 13. And that was incredibly helpful because then you sort of revert a little bit to, oh, yeah, you know, this is a bit expected and this is a challenge to see if I can handle this uh, problem better than one I, what I did last time as opposed to being completely you know, uh, sitting there very hopeful and being caught completely unawares and, and, and start to do stupid things. Brilliant. In in any of those moments, or, or even the one you just described there, did 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 giving up ever cross your mind? Um, no, I don't think so, if I'm being honest. I mean, I don't think giving up is a bad thing, but I mean, you, you, you know, you, you should, you should, uh, again, I think, uh, sorry for being boring about this point of introspection, but like you, you should have some sort of framework around it and just, you know, think like, when is it right to give up? When when is it, you know, just not worth it? So can you talk to us about that? Like, when is it time to, that's one of the things I love about investing as well, because say there's that, those are those questions you have to answer. So what are we going to, what do we decide to buy? And then there's that, when and how much do we decide to buy? And yeah. But then the side of that is, well, when do we decide to sell? when is it time to sometimes sort of stop out of a stock or and the stock i guess in this instance is this is what i love about investing again and the, the value the transfer i think it has to every profession is that there is always time when it comes to decision making to stop out of a stock or a relationship or a career path or a habit and and how do you make those decisions I mean, in fact, some of the decisions we're most proud of here is when we've lost money, we've uh, admitted to making a mistake, we sell the position, having lost whatever it is, 20-30%, and the stock continues down, uh, because that is much harder than, than you know, a, a lot of other decisions. It's quite easy to buy something, and it's, it's really hard to know when to 
when to sell. So again, you need to build a framework around, you know, um, when is a potential problem just a cough and when is it actually cancer? And uh, so, you know, given we're long-term investors, we have a fairly high barrier for, for, for saying something uh, is a mistake and, and we should sell. But over the years, we've collected data on our decision-making process and we know, for instance, that there are no good explanations for why companies start to go aggressive on their accounting. So, you know, if, if the accounting team tells us that this uh, is not looking so good, then, you know, uh, routinely we will sell it because we'll, you know, rather have a portfolio of stocks that don't feel they have to massage your numbers uh, than, than, you know, having companies that, that do feel the need to make things look a little bit better than maybe they are. Um, then the other thing, which is, um, I think, a cool innovation we've made is to try to build a system to capture the little smoke signals of something going wrong. So typically, a company will not go wrong overnight. So Microsoft is going to be like a bad stock tomorrow, having been a great company today. Um, but if you then go and do sort of post-mortem of companies that have gone wrong, you will see in hindsight. Side. There are little signs, but individually, none of these signs are big enough for you to sit up and pay attention. And the market doesn't pay attention, company does well, stock does as well. And then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose, there's a profit warning and stock halves, uh, and it's too late. So we've built a database to collect all the work we do on each individual stock. And then that way, we can capture these clusters of little things that may or may not be an indication of something going wrong in the future, interrogate those. And, and, and sometimes that's got us out of trouble a little bit ahead of time. So, um, so that's been a good innovation, but that, that's again, you know, process, 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 which, which, um, which got us to, to that point. Fantastic. In terms of the first principles of investing or the foundational principles, to what extent have they changed since the early part of your career to now? And, and how much do you expect them to change over the next 10 to 20 years? Oh, forecasting the future is really, really hard. So I'm not going to do that, but I can talk <laughs> to how they've changed. Uh, like I said, I mean, the key change has been that the market is much more short term. Uh, the market is much more dominated by computers, trading algorithms, um, quant funds and and uh, so the the human element uh is on the retreat and i think that's quite exciting so yes there'll be more volatility maybe and more strange things happening to pricing on individual stocks in the market but i think you know if you do your work as a stock picker as a human being um i think the opportunities could be bigger so that's one thing that's changed the second thing is that the world is spinning around much more quickly. So if you look at the sort of indices of the biggest or best uh, whatever companies in the world, that the tempo with which the constituent parts are, you know, changing uh, is probably double of what it was 40 years ago. And the whole digital transformation, obviously, has been a huge thing there. You know, uh, when I started work, one of the really good sectors to invest in was... Um, newspapers and yellow pages because they had these classified ads and that's like printing gold because you know if you had the distribution you had the clients so it was you know, cost you nothing to print these big yellow uh, bricks and and, and uh, you know um, all the advertisers have paid all the money internet comes along and maybe with one or two exceptions all those companies are bust 
and you know the, the the world is changing much more quickly driven by digital and so so that's the second big change to the financial market in my opinion okay and then so when it comes to the future what do you what do you perceive the the, the biggest opportunities or, or and or threats to be to to a, an established you know giant like AKO you you know great what you're doing you've proven that if it were to go wrong why would it go wrong uh things go wrong for us when uh, Mr Market does not like quality companies uh that happened in 13 it happened last year so you know um we've been doing this for 18 years and we've had two years when we've been completely out of favor and I'm sure that's going to happen again in the future that's more of a short-term thing um long term i think uh i mean we're taking this really lazy approach in that we identify good companies and the best managers and then we sort of rely on them to do all the hard work and we just sit on the sidelines uh talk to them make sure nothing's going wrong but you know uh i i can't teach michael o'leary anything about running an airline uh and so you know i'm not going to kind of say what's happening to the airline industry in the future uh but you know, uh, I'll, I'll leave it to him. And, you know, ditto. I, I can't tell the guys at L'Oreal anything about how to run a cosmetics business. But you know, we think they are the best, and we think they'll make the right decisions. And we think the best place to meet whatever challenges uh, are in the future. And then we think back to what I said about you know uh, availability bias. You know, like, like um, some bad stuff will happen. And so one of the things we like in our companies is that they have a conservative balance sheet because you know when when the proverbial hits the fan like COVID and, you know, you, you, you have no business for a while and like, you know, Ryanair had to put all their plates on the ground. Um, they were the only airline not to put all their planes on the ground, sack uh, all their pilots and crew. And so, you know, they kept their planes uh, certified and their pilots certified and, and surprise, surprise, when travel came back after COVID, <laughs> they've been taking all the market share they want because, you know, they had a balance sheet and all the other airlines didn't have a balance sheet and all the other airlines are still struggling to fly what they used to fly before COVID. So, you know, being conservative, realising that stuff will happen and, and whatever it is, you know, it, it's it's good to have a, a bit of a war chest. It's, uh, you know, um, the basic things really, but uh, you'd be surprised in, in finance uh, how people uh, plan for everything known and ignore all the unknowns, but you should know unknowns will happen, right? Absolutely. And factor them into your whole process and framework, I guess. It comes back to that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, This is more a personal question, curiosity. It's one I like to uh, ask fundamental investors. Bitcoin. Yes. What's your thoughts on it? Bad. Bad. <laughs> it doesn't solve any particularly a uh, useful problem that I could think of. Uh, and that to me is a fundamental problem with Bitcoin. So to me, it has all the hallmarks of a speculative uh, asset class. I want to direct the conversation back to, I guess, you as a performer who's excelled in, in a very competitive area. And oftentimes when we talk about performance, we instantly sort of gravitate towards that competitive aspect that you know you've talked about today and and sort of no, i blame my mother for giving it to me oh yeah she's 80 and she'll still speed up a bit when she's skiing if someone's skiing past her <laughs> fantastic is so literally in the dna there i'm afraid so um well but, but the other side of performance of course is is 
recovery, restoration, that ability to switch off. Yeah. I sort of call it like this green, these green head moments, and you can look to find them ac- acutely in the course of the, the day, but also chronically throughout seasons, careers. Like, mm. how have you managed that? Uh, going back to the family, I, I was really lucky. I had this uh, wonderful uh, granddad who's uh, kind of a hobby philosopher, and he uh, talked a lot. Uh, some of it stuck with me, and he'd say things like, oh, it's just money, and, uh, you know, um, and if you think about um, what's important and what's not, uh, you know, money is a really useful thing if you have none, but then it quickly gets to a point where it's uh, not so useful and can be counterproductive. So just having some perspective on, on that is, is really helpful. So, yes, you might have lost $100 million, but, you know, it's a number on the screen and it could change tomorrow. And if you concentrate on the process, hopefully it'll change over time in the right direction. So, you know, you just need to have a strong philosophy around um, little things. And and, and uh, I think that, that for me has been absolutely key. I mean, family helps. So we had our first child during the financial crisis and that was nice getting back to this uh, screaming baby, which kind of took you a mind of things. Um, I can imagine. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I kind of pride myself on the fact that my wife usually can't tell whether I lost or made money when I come home. So um, going for maybe a long walk if you've had a tough day to yep. just sort of, you know, take an hour to let things kind of process a bit, um, you know, philosophical attitude to to life, uh, sense of humor. I think those would be my key things. And, and how, do you have any hobbies outside of... Um you know your craft is there anything you enjoy you talked about skiing there i know norwegians are big into that oh, you have to ski if you're norwegian That's of kind of you. yeah, yeah. Uh, i like these hobbies which kind of take take the edge off a little bit like occupies a part of your brain but not always so like you know fishing is that you're fishing it's like the hours just go by and you know it's nice uh, absolutely and and then and then pivot into that bringing it back into the day like Mm. The other thing I sometimes talk about is how excellence is really just a series of days that repeat across time. And if you win yeah. a day across time, you you compound your gains and you'll hit tipping points. You'll have those breakthroughs as well as the drawdowns, but you'll you'll, you'll be directionally correct in terms of trending upward. Yes. Are there any things that you have that are like, you know, as Gorm, this helps me win my day. These are the non-negotiables. This and this is happening. Or is there any specific routines or habits? Um decent routines around things like getting good sleep uh i have pretty strong routines around exercise and reasonably good routines around eating but otherwise i think i kind of like it when days are a bit different so i think i'll get bored doing the same thing uh all the time so i sort of i think happy they're lucky in that i i i i like a bit of variability uh, absolutely um i think probably exercise we're given this tool that is our body and our brain and it's all so so closely linked uh you know if there's an issue uh outside your brain you (laughs) that's where you you feel it and you know um you know if you're stressed you feel it in your stomach and and all these things so i think it's you know, it's absolutely imperative to to keep up some kind of exercise regime and, and um I, I get a bit frustrated when people say i don't have time to train or i don't have time to cook and time to eat because th- then you just have your parties wrong i think and i'm 
again, if, if, if I were sort of the dictator running the country, I would just, I, I think I could fix that problem by just like banning daytime TV for anybody who wasn't bedridden because, you know, it's just like so much time is wasted on social media TV. So to think that you don't have time to exercise when you look at your screen time, uh, it, it just doesn't compute. And I, I think your baseline performance is so dependent on, 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 on physical exercise and what you eat. But that's a really, really tragic problem uh, right now uh, when you look at uh, the health uh, stats and, 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 you know, how the NHS is spending 20% of their budget on lifestyle preventable type of, of diseases. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so th- those are some of the things that um, helped me anyway. No, very insightful. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, coming towards the end now one of the questions i wanted to ask you is what person do you think has had the biggest impact on helping you become the performer you are today my uh my parents uh um my granddad for doing the whole uh philosophy thing introducing me to that very early on and um, because philosophy is not very sexy and like you know if you look at philosophers now they just sort of go down this really obscure rabbit hole so it just seems to have no bearing on your life whatsoever but he brought it back to the basics back in the days when like the philosophers were actually talking about how to live your life what's good what's bad and, and the, the really really important questions in life and they probably spend more time than thinking better about those questions than what most people do now because you know you just have your head in the screens and have no time to think and watch tv all the time so, so that in you know, introducing me to that whole kind of introspection thing was was really really helpful real privilege to work with people like nikolai the, the caliber of people at echo is just absolutely fantastic and so you know i, I think uh, we learn from each other um uh, all the time really and, and um so uh and then, you know, if I don't mention my wife, she'll probably beat me up. So I'll... Uh, <laughs> I was like, and? <laughs> credit, credit her with uh, that very, very important third pillar in your life, which is uh, family, home, life, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, social life. Uh, and that's all uh, That's all her credit. Brilliant. And and is there one figure? So, okay, same question, but is there one body of work or author or philosopher that you think has, has had a similar effect? Socrates, Hume, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche are the philosophers uh, that I get the most out of. Um, I kind of like the uh, idea of Buddhism that is a slightly chill religion in that, you know, uh, I think one guy described it really well as um, it's a bit like a boat. Uh, you use it to cross a river when you have a problem, but you don't necessarily want to strap that boat to your back and carry around every day. So, like, religion is a kind of tool that, you, you know, you use it when it's useful, but, you know, like, don't sort of stop it from, you know, stop you from eating lobster and, and you know, whatever. And then, you know, out of all the sort of business book stuff, I think um, maybe four books, I absolutely loved uh, The Black Swan by Taleb. Uh, I referenced The Fox and the Hedgehog. I can't remember what that book is called. The- there's a book called Super Forecasting by Tedlock, which is really good. And then the fourth one would be Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. So I think, you know, uh, among all these books, uh, those are four really good ones. And then AK, we've written two uh, outstanding books, obviously, one called Quality Investing. And then we've worked with this Norwegian policeman who's written a really, really good book about um, the art of the professional interview, which, you know, is something that, again, we discovered we were really not very good at. And 
you know, we, with the help of this chap, we deconstructed that whole process and liked it. But we've got a lot better at it uh, over the years. And, you know, that's, again, something that's fun to work with because, you know, you can use that both at work and at home uh, and everywhere else, really. Um, the, the better you communicate with people, um, you know, uh, just accelerates everything. And, and, you know, avoiding misunderstandings is, uh, you know, can get rid of so many potentially really frustrating problems in life. Absolutely, that's really useful, and we'll hope to get some links to those in the podcast. Um, I'm just going to a few quick fire questions to finish. Go. So, coffee with any historical figure? Who would it be? I have to go large. I'd go with Jesus. Okay, excellent. Favorite movie? True Romance. Okay. Favorite series? Uh, don't really have one. Sorry. Okay. A quote. A quote. Um, is there one that resonates with you? Yeah, I go back to my coffee buddy Jesus. He said something like, um, "Don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow will bring its own troubles, and uh, today's troubles are enough." Fantastic. Last question: If there was one message you could install into society, and they would understand it comprehensively, what would that message be? Um, I think getting that whole eating and exercising thing radically better would create a lot of happiness so that probably be the biggest lever for for happiness and i totally appreciate it's linked to poverty and that's a bigger question society wise but i do think that if everybody could take an hour out of screen time and put it into some combo of cooking from scratch and doing a bit of exercise, and I could just be a walk in the park and do what the Japanese call, you know, forest bath, I think cost benefit, that is the simplest, uh, best uh, lever that I would uh, pull potentially if I were the big nine dictator uh, in charge. <laughs> Brilliant, Gorm. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, no doubt, I look forward to, to watching AKO um, dominate for, for years to come. Thanks so much. Been fun, James. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers. The thing I love most about trading and investing in general is that it's completely meritocratic. There's lots of areas in life, especially within performance, that are very subjective and qualitative. But in investing, you have this information, everyone else has it, you make a decision, and a year, five years, 10 years down the line, we can start to compare the decisions you made versus someone else um, who had the exact same information. And given enough sample size and time frame, we can very clearly see who performed the best. It's, for me, almost a mental sport in that respect. One of the things I love most about Gorm is his humility. I don't know if that's linked to his Norwegian roots. I think AKO embody this as a whole, despite all their success. And I believe looking at the challenge of performance through this lens of humility is part of the reason they are so unconventional and dynamic in terms of how they achieve success in their space. Sometimes it's not about how, but rather who. And I think AKO are a phenomenal example of the power of this. Um, traditionally, in finance, you've got these market wizards that can just, you know, read the market, the uh, the touch me, you'll heal types. 
Um, and yes, AKO has outlier leaders in terms of Nikolai, of course, and Gorm, amongst others in that, that team. But fundamentally, they're a talented group of individuals that have high baseline abilities, coupled with the humility to not just listen and leverage, but to actually bring other experts into their team. Gorm talked about their in-house black belt accountants uh, working their magic, the black belt psychologists assessing management teams, then the uh, black belt linguists deconstructing data, the black belt data teams tracking the leading indicators, looking for smoke. And finally, I think he mentioned their black belt marketers conducting that primary research function rather than the traditional conventional superstar investment team who like to think they can do it all, which is absolutely the status quo in this space. And some, some do. Here's the key thing for me though. This type of setup does not manifest without humility at the roots of the organization. Gorm even had the humility to point out that after reading my book, what jumped out at him was that they weren't fully aligned with the principles that optimize the talent identification side of things. Um, Gorm then immediately sought to optimize this, plugging gaps that he and the team spotted. There was zero panic. It was calm, clinical, but assertive and a ton of action and sincere engagement to immediately start tweaking and experimenting in terms of how they optimize their process in this area. Another thing that jumped out in the conversation was this sort of long-term thinking versus short-term. A particularly interesting Point to reflect on was the Benjamin Graham quote Gorm shared. In the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it's a weighing machine. And for me, the stock market is just a metaphor for life and for performance. Now, in the short term, uh, the stock market, life, uh, your pursuit of excellence, there's a lot of noise. And one area you can go wrong is getting caught up in that noise and finding yourself chasing short-term results at the expense of your long-term development. The behaviors you might engage in to generate short-term results are very different from the behaviors that will provide you long-term success. And this is a powerful example of how the thing we crave so much, winning, can also hold us back if it's not managed properly. After all, you can win today by relying on skills you know won't work at the next level or in the long run. For example, raw power in rugby or a photographic memory in trading are skills that can enable you to produce winning results in the earlier stages of your development. The snag, though, is the effectiveness of these attributes in the long run. They sort of drop off a, a cliff as the standard of competition increases. At this point, everyone has these skills. So suddenly new skills like passing off both hands are key for the rugby player or connecting information fast and under pressure, a key for the trader. And if your sole priority has been to win today and you've relied on the skills that don't work at this new level, you won't have developed the ability you need to progress and compete. And I think one of the messages here are that there are times where you must sacrifice winning today to prioritize developing the capability you need to win tomorrow. You need to avoid short-term strategies like working harder for longer and ignoring rest and recovery, or going to the organization that pays the most over the one that will develop you most by perhaps giving you the opportunity to compete. Ultimately, elite performance is a long-term process. Great skills like great companies will need time to compound. So you can eventually hit those tipping points and experience those breakthrough moments that propel you to the top. Progress isn't linear for you or great companies. 
And the question to reflect on is what's the best decision for your development tomorrow, not your ego today? When it comes to your ambition, talent, and your effort, we want long-term quality investments of these crucial assets. The fact is, excellence is volatile and there are no straight lines to the top and there are no exceptions to this rule. There's always going to be a lag between your actions and the outcomes they produce. And during those lags, the outcomes can be all over the place. Gorm shares how the outcomes will tell you every day for a year that you're an idiot. He also emphasized how you have to separate the process and the outcome, and you have to have the confidence in your process to be able to ignore that short-term noise. And I think that's a big part of AKO's huge focus on optimizing that process. And if you really feel the need to engage in some kicking and screaming, as Gorm described it, then direct this at the quality of your process, not the outcomes. For me, this conversation was another powerful reminder uh, for how important a robust process that you trust is. It transforms your commitment to achieving a goal or pursuing excellence from that risk or dream chasing exercise to a set of logical steps. The outcomes might not be there yet, but when you have a robust process to get you there, this reduces the volatility, it shuts out some of the noise, and it keeps the focus on controlling what's controllable. I want to say thanks again to Gorm. I love the conversation and I wish you and the AKO team the absolute best. I have zero doubt you'll continue to dominate the space for years to come if you stick to these uh, principles you currently do. And uh, hopefully we'll get to grab a beer soon. Cheers, Gorm. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. I love this topic of human performance and excellence and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network and learnings with you. Now go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions, blind spots. We've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like Everything I do, the book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals is filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. 
that if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. Great, we get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important for the aspiring athlete, executive or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill, and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain. Like learning to ride a bike or drive a car, all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.